Thank you ever so much for having me today. Uh, it's lovely to come and visit you, and it's lovely to be in a different church. I'm from St. James's Piccadilly, as you may have heard at the beginning of the service. Um, and I'm answering the question, and I think you're ask, asking all your preachers in Lent to answer, which is, why I am a Christian and how? And it's a really good question. I was saying to Martin earlier, it's a very direct question, and it's forced me to uh, give a kind of a, an answer, perhaps a bit of an account of myself um, to you, and it's come up with some surprising things for me. So essentially, why I am a Christian and how, I think probably where I would start is to say that for me, it's been a story and continues to be a story of kind of muddling through. Someone said to me recently that the trick to climbing a mountain was to put one foot in front of the other, but crucially, enough times. <laughs> I really like that, enough times. I'm completely astonished that I've been ordained for 24 years this summer. I don't know where that's gone. And for many people, that makes me into some kind of professional Christian. Try wearing a dog collar on the tube, see what happens. Some people think that people who are ordained are paid to be nice to people, somehow doing the Christian life in a more intense way or something. I don't know what you think. But to me, the central vocation that I have isn't actually to be a priest, but to be a human being, and for my humanity to become more Christ-shaped as I go along. For me, that has involved being a priest, and as I am now, I'm in a parish, and so be it. But if I stopped doing the work of a priest, I would be left with the most important bit of vocation, to be a human being, wanting to live a more Christ-shaped life. And I think, for me, that's the key thing. It's involved muddling along, and it's involved putting one foot in front of the other enough times. For the most part, I think I have probably sung myself into faith rather than argued it or talked myself into it. Music has been a really important way for me to say things, to sing things that are hard to say in words. And I know that finding that voice in faith has involved learning physically and spiritually to breathe more deeply. I've learned by singing my faith that repetition and practice is necessary in the spiritual life. That it is effortful, but that it's worth it. And that I am somehow, mostly, not quite sure why, still keen to put in the effort when I was a child, my mum uh, put a poem on the fridge. It was quite a trite poem, but living beside it every day, somehow I think it's gone in. And the sentiment of it has proved to be important in my life as I've tried to muddle along being a Christian. The poem is this. God has not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our life through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, or peace without pain. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for our labour and light for the way, grace for trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy and undying love. I think to be truthful, my mum also used the thrust of this sentiment to combat my often wailing, it's not fair, with a riposte, whoever said it was going to be fair. The implication being that not even God had said it was going to be fair because it was on the fridge. This... <laughs> This is probably, this sentiment has probably gone a bit deeper than I thought. And so I want to pick out a few moments that might start to answer the question, why I am a Christian and how. 
I'm 12 years old. I'm singing in the parish church choir. I've asked if I might be a server like my brother in a high church with periodic incense and a sanctuary bell. The elderly man, who is the head server, very kindly but firmly says he will not have serviettes in his church. (laughs) And the vicar doesn't disagree. So instead, I learn British Sign Language and chat to my friend Karen silently throughout every sermon each Sunday. I'm 17. I'm at Greenbelt with a large group of teenagers. Bernard and Sue, a couple who seem really, really old to me then, but actually must have been probably my age now, have a bunch of us round to their house every Friday night. Every Friday night. And then they take us to Greenbelt for a few years. I become a fan of the band Fat and Frantic and with some friends buy a washboard and start playing skiffle. We reformed for Nick's 50th birthday last summer and sang the song, if any of you know it, DHSS, much to the bemusement of his other guests. I'm 21 and my world has fallen in. I'm sitting beside the bedside of someone that I love very much. He'd fallen down a mountain, hit his head on a rock and was in a coma. The nurses in the Geneva Hospital have said we should speak to him. Apart from the inane chatter I continue with, I find myself reading him Psalm 91, suggested by someone in his family. I find myself reading the line as we heard this morning. God will give his angels charge over you, so that you dash not your foot against a stone. Even as I read it, I remember saying to God, that's a lie. That's exactly what happened to him. There were no angels, there was no saving. Despite our reading and sitting with him, despite singing Come Back My Love from the 60s and reading out Asterix cartoons, after eight days he dies, aged 22. I've sung Psalm 91 many times since we heard it today. What happens now is not that I accuse God of lying, although sometimes I do still do that, And I wouldn't be able to get past it if it was just about the words. But it's not just words, it's a poetic promise, and it's scripture. What happens now is that I kind of hold that promise tenderly in my hands. God will give his angels charge over you so that you dash not your foot against the stone. I kind of hold that promise in my hands as a piece of scripture that has sometimes, like the stone it describes, cut my hands and slashed my heart and hurt me. But as another poem I know goes, the wind of my rage has smoothed it and the lashing of my tears has weathered it so that the promise is now more beautiful and I can again hear its song. And I remember again in this season of Lent that Jesus was confronted with that very promise in the desert. He resisted testing God with it, and so probably should I. I've learned to hold scripture in this way, especially the hard bits, ever since. Why am I a Christian and how? I'm a few years later living in a L'Arche community where people with learning disabilities live with assistants like me. My whole worldview is challenged and changed by the people I live with, by Susan, 
whose pain of years of rejection by her family and friends gives her a piercing gaze from which I'm unable to escape, by Sal, who doesn't speak and who sings tunelessly as we sing together on, sit together on a bench in the Kent countryside. Very suddenly, her tunelessness becomes something different. She sang this. I looked at her. Sal, you know what you just sang? We seem to be able to communicate for a moment until she returns to her rocking and the meandering tune that only she knows. A couple of years later, I'm living in Birmingham in the 1990s. I'm living in Handsworth, and I'm training to be a priest. Well, I was selected to be a deacon, but the vote went through as I was training. I'm on attachment at Trinity Pentecostal Church, and I hear the stories of the congregation every Sunday and the casual and sometimes not-so-casual racism they experience. I am the only white-skinned person in the congregation for a year, and I have to preach from time to time. Terrifying, as this had to be 45 minutes at least. I discover, however, I dis- I've got my watch on, don't worry. I, I discover that the congregation will help me. If I'm stuck, I can say, let God's people say, and then everyone replies, Amen. And if I'm really stuck, and this did happen to me a couple of times, somebody at the back shouts out, Help her, Jesus! <laughs> I am profoundly accepted in this remarkable church and loved and taught and frankly tolerated. I learned there that it's really important to connect your faith with your lived experience, your unemployment, your worries about your kids, your divorces and your late entry attempts at higher education. A couple of years later, I discover that in the first years of the prospect of women becoming, as the Sun said, the Sun newspaper said, vicars in knickers, I'm an object of interest for the media. I take part in a TV documentary at Theological College. And later, after an incredibly formative spell in Manor Park in East London, the first parish I was involved in, I get a call from my mum while I'm away on holiday. She's in tears. And she says, you're on the front page of all the national newspapers. My appointment to be the first woman priest at St Paul's Cathedral has been leaked by a furious clergyman there. And despite the cathedral's determination to keep it quiet for a week, it was out within 24 hours. On returning from holiday, I couldn't go home, but went to a safe house as my East London flat was besieged by satellite vans and reporters. Once I went to St Paul's, I was followed by a TV crew from the BBC for a year, and at the broadcast of the programme, I received thousands of letters, many supportive, of course, but many also telling me that I was going against the teaching of the Bible, that I was disgusting, that I shouldn't be taking communion services if I was menstruating, that people certainly shouldn't receive communion from me. Truly, I felt dirty And I felt as if the church to which I was trying to give my energy, my love and my commitment was actually more than being ambivalent, it was actually trying to kind of wretch me up. The institution convulsed and for the first generation of women clergy it felt as if we were being almost violently rejected. 
On Easter Day, a man approached me on the steps of the cathedral after the service. He was crying and angry, shouting that I'd taken his church away from him. He was beside himself, begging me to stop what I was doing. What I learned there is that in the heat of the day, in that harsh media spotlight, it can be really very lonely. And I feel that some of my spirituality has been forged in what you might call the white heat of those experiences, of years of 20-something grief and of an invasiveness of a search-like media that frankly sent me inside myself. In the years since, I've become much more aware of what happens when you feel like your whole church or faith is in peril, like those people did who wrote such really terrible things to a young woman they'd never met. I'm so glad that happened to me before the age of social media. But I do think I've been given a deeper sense of empathy than is feasible as if it were down to me. And I believe passionately in remaining resolute about the humanity of the people who hate you, even if they're hating you loudly. I picked this gospel reading, The Samaritan Woman at the Well, for a few reasons. But I think actually because I've discovered in faith terms that conversation, like the conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well, can be revolutionary. Conversation can be revolutionary if it involves listening deeply as well as speaking. Because it can deepen our own empathy, not only for others, but for ourselves. It can broaden our compassion for ourselves and for others. And it's a mode of praying, conversation with God, that's essential when times get really, really tough. I guess that also, as I've gone on, I've travelled through different emphases. I still really love Mark's Gospel with its breathless pace and say-it-how-it-is tone. But as I go on, I love John's Gospel more and more because it's more elusive. It's poetic, it's paradoxical. And I've learned that whenever I can spot a paradox or a hint of a something, rather than a four-square, this is how it is, that's when I hear truth. And because I think that in John's Gospel, conversation is revolutionary. It changes people's lives and sets us on a different path. This Gospel is a case in point. I've heard lots of sermons and talks on this particular story told from Jesus' point of view, highlighting, for example, the risk he's taking by speaking publicly with a woman from the hated Samaria. And of course, he's clearly breaking a taboo by talking to her. I think in my younger days, just listening to all those sermons, this kind of sermon encouraged me to want to do good, want to help people, especially people who were despised, whoever they were. But they were probably staying as they. But actually nowadays, I don't want to think like that. I want to hear the gospel that the woman is giving life to, instead of always pivoting to the experience of Jesus of Nazareth, focusing on how brave he's being by talking to her and giving me him as my role model. I'd like to discover her personality, because even in that isolated place and rejected place, she's fun. She's not afraid to tease him and challenge him. That story told from the woman's point of view 
sets her free and then sets us free to be braver than we ever thought we could be. Just really briefly, that turning the story round might go something like this. Give you a drink, she says. Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. Are you out of your mind? Of course you can't do that. I really like to think Jesus is a bit taken aback by this and a bit on the back foot. Oh, well, you know, all I wanted was a drink. I kind of like to think he gets himself together a bit and remembers that he has got stuff to say. He's got important stuff to teach. So he retreats into sermon mode. Okay then, right, well, if you knew who it was who was asking you for a drink, you'd actually be asking him, not the other way around, and the water he would give you would be living water. The woman roars with laughter. Oh my days, she says. Well, I don't know where you think you're going to get that water. You haven't even got a bucket. What are you going to do? I'm a big Fleabag fan. I think she's like Fleabag, turning towards the camera at that moment to comment, there you go, I knew he'd never done a day's work in his life. No clue. Jesus tries again with that teaching. Well, uh, everyone who drinks water from the well here will obviously get thirsty again eventually, but actually I'm talking about water that stops you being thirsty at all. Fantastic, guffaws the woman, whose life revolves around the daily trudge of getting and carrying heavy, heavy water backwards and forwards. Fantastic. I won't ever have to do that again. A different life. Let's have that water, she says. I like to think of Jesus, who we might remember started this conversation pretty exhausted and just wanting a simple drink of water in the heat of the day, now getting a bit near the end of his tether. Go and call your husband, he says. And in brackets, well, maybe I can get more sense out of him. You're clearly not taking me seriously. And by the way, I still haven't had a drink. (laughs) Well, says the woman, perhaps a little defiantly, perhaps being a little economical with the truth. I don't have one. So I can't. Well, you're right, says Jesus. And I know that not only that, but you've had five. And the one you're living with now is not your husband. And then the conversation starts to be of a different order. It changes. The next bit is something that pivots both of them to talk on a different level. Because Jesus just says to her, what you have said is true. What you have said is true. There's no explanation or comment on her personal circumstances, although people hearing the story might disapprove of her in some way. Jesus simply says, what you have said is true. This truth-telling about her life sets them off on a different path, and no one is tired anymore. This woman is recognised and known, her story is told as it is, unvarnished, without any hubris or embellishment, with all its mixture of fun and shame and hope and playfulness, loneliness, hard, hard work, family complexities, a not uncomplicated relationship history. In amongst all of this, she says to her friends, come and see someone who told me everything I ever did. And so looking at scripture from a different angle means that Jesus doesn't only become my role model. This woman is. I can recognize her. I am her. By turning it round like that, I guess I learn in my terms of my own faith not so much to be nice to people who are rejected, but to be much more transgressive than that to seek out the taboos of our own society 
and intentionally break them. To try to have conversations in the light when the sun is high at noon and not allow them to be held in the dark. Another of the Samaritan stories that seared itself into my spirituality and which keeps me faithful is the parable of the man beaten up on the road to Jericho. You remember, others hurried past, but the hated Samaritan was the only one who stopped. In the large community I lived in, I mentioned, we acted out this parable. A young woman, who happened to have Down syndrome, played the part of this Samaritan. All went as it should, until it came to the bit where she was to tend to the man's wounds who'd been left for dead at the side of the road. She took the towel and gently wiped his face. So far, so good, and we all thought she'd finished. But she carried on. She went and found the priest who had been too busy to stop, and she wiped his face too. She found the Levite who'd hurried past. She went over to the innkeeper who hadn't even come on at this point (laughs) and wiped his face too. And lastly, she went deliberately and she found the violent robbers hiding behind a rock and she gently wiped their face too. I learned from her that I and you can be every part of that story ourselves at times. And so the questions are different from that gospel. The question might be, what is the part of me that is beaten up and bleeding and left for dead at the side of the road that the busy, successful me wants to ignore and hurry past? Where is it that I'm being asked by God to pay attention and realise that I have those violent tendencies within myself too that might try to destroy the bits of me that I have come to despise? For me, like that famous quote by Eleanor Roosevelt, faith has been like a tea bag. I haven't known how strong it is until I've been in hot water or until I've been out of my depth in the face of the grace of someone else's faith, like that young woman. Alongside Lush, alongside the black-led churches in Birmingham, alongside the being the first as a priest, one of the other deepest spiritual influences on my life has been the time I spent in silence during the spir- doing the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius. I had no idea whether I could make it through the 33 days in silence. But I learned there that all words and all music actually finds its home in silence. The internal furniture rearranged itself when I went through that process a few years ago and it's never gone back. And so I'll close with a prayer that I wrote for the Feast of the Presentation when Jesus was taken to the temple and Simeon and Anna told Mary and Joseph who he was. Reflecting on the story as a moment when God became wordless in this baby, unable to speak, and the irony of that, given the word, is what we call Christ. Why am I a Christian and how? I'm still not sure. But let us pray.
Eternal God, show me myself as I really am. Help me to name the fantasies I construct and the hiddenness of my truth. Show me where I am wordless and give me people who can give me the words. Show me myself even when I resist you, when I fight myself or when I wish I was someone else. Show me myself that I can recognise again that I am loved and forgiven and free. Whatever mess I've got myself into, however frightened I am of change, and whatever the unknown future holds. Show me myself as I am, and give me back to myself. Help me to be surprised by grace. Amen.